In 2 Peter chapter 2, 12 through 22, beware of the false teachers con, if you would stand for reading of God's word. But these, like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand, and will utterly perish in their own corruption, and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from their sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetousness covetous practices, and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey, speaking with the man's voice, restrained the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome by him also he is brought into bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them to have not known the way of righteousness than to have known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returned to his own vomit, and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. This is the word of God. Please be seated. The theme of Second Peter is beware and grow. Now who are we to beware of? False teachers. False teachers. The con men. The con artist. Now, last week, Peter reminds us and his readers that God will judge the wicked. He will judge the lost, and he does it in three ways. He brings the angels that had, that had fallen, demons who had fallen in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, and cohabitated with the daughters of men. And their, their judgment was going to be sure. We know that Noah's time, Noah's world was judged, and we know that Sodom and Gomorrah was judged. That was our three examples. The angels who, who sinned and left their abode. Remember, the angelic realm, the demonic realm included, only can function within the constraints that God has allowed them to function. If they go beyond that, then they're going to be thrown into prison. And these in Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 through 3, are thrown into a place called Tartarus, which is the darkest of dark, confined forever. Their ultimate destiny will be the lake of fire. Where all lost go, both human and angelic. But that is their destiny. Why again? Because they cohabitated with the daughters of men. Now, this is what they attempted to do. They attempted to pollute the human gene pool and, and thwart the coming of the Messiah. Hear the words of Arnold Fruchtenbaum on this. These angels who intermarried were angels who were already fallen. They fell when Satan fell. Now, some of the angels who fell with Satan began to intermarry with humans, or Satan arranged for them to do so. The question is, why would Satan even bother doing this? The answer lies, now hear this, in the first messianic prophecy, Jesus' coming prophecy in Genesis 3.15, which declared that Messiah would be born of the seed of the woman. Genesis 3.15. 
Satan knew this prophecy because it was directly addressed to him. He knew that a descendant of the woman he tempted would someday come and defeat him. Therefore, Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 through 2, is Satan's response to Genesis 3.15. This was a satanic attempt to corrupt the seed of the woman by having some of his angels take on human form and intermarry with human women to try to corrupt the seed of Messiah. Now, of course, he wasn't successful, but it took the flood to destroy all those people with eight remaining in Noah's time. Jude 6 talks about these despicable angels and what they did. We went through that last time. These are the worst of the worst, and again, they are housed now in Tartarus, taken out of action, no longer functioning under Satan's control. They're in prison. We talked about the angels would be judged who left their proper domain. Then we talked about Noah's world. In Genesis 6-5, what was the condition of Noah's world? Every intent and thought of the heart of the people was evil. It was evil in the morning, evil in the evening, evil at supper time. It was evil all the time. Evil all the time. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And can you imagine preaching decade after decade after decade and no converts? It ends up being his family, his, his sons, their wives, and Mr. and Mrs. Noah, and they go into the ark. Eight people. Eight people out of that whole earth. And some people postulate that there was over a billion population at that time, a billion people that were destroyed because they wouldn't listen to the preacher of righteousness, and they denied what he had to say. And there came a day in Noah's time when Noah went into the ark after all those decades of preaching, and God shut the door. There would be no more mercy. There would be no more grace extended to humanity. There comes a time. That was Noah's world. Then they used the, the third example was Sodom and Gomorrah and the extreme evil that was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah that got the attention of God. And God's going to destroy that city. Now, if you remember, homosexuality is usually the thing that is thought of when you think about Sodom and Gomorrah, but it wasn't just homosexuality. In Ezekiel 16, 48, we see that it was pride. And remember, pride is the chief thing that God hates. Someone who tries to put themselves out front. Remember what Jesus said, it's better to take the back seat, the back place at the table, and be asked to come to the forward than try to put yourself out front. It's so easy to do. They want to put yourself out front. Pride. They had abundance of, abundance of stuff. They were, they, they, they were full of themselves. They were full of their things. Full of their things. They, they were idle. They were not compassionate to the poor. And then the crescendo was homosexuality. And I will, I will submit to you that homosexuality is usually the pinnacle of when humans go over to the dark side. It is, it is when they say, okay, we're going to abandon what you have established as one man, one woman for life, and we're going to do it our way, God. We're going to do it our way. And Sodom and Gomorrah ended up being destroyed. But not before Abraham intercedes. Remember, there were angels and there was God. And they were coming down and they talked with Abraham. Abraham intercedes and he says, will you spare this city for 50 people. God says, yes, I will. 45, yes, I will. 40, 30, 20, all the way down to 10 people. And God says, yes, I will spare it for 10 people. That's the mercy and the grace and the compassion of God. He is compassionate like you cannot believe. But do you know what Lot did and Lot's wife did and Lot's daughters did and Lot's son-in-laws did? 
His son-in-laws thought that Lot was joking and ignored him. And his daughters and wife and him had to be taken by the hand and led out of the city by the angels. With the caveat, do not look back at this city. Don't long for this city. Don't long for what is happening here. He, they, they, they left, and what did Mrs. Lot do? She turned around and she turned into a pillar of salt. And Do you know that people say, how can the Bible be true? How can anybody turn into a pillar of salt? Well, I will submit to you, how can anybody walk on water? How can anybody make water into wine at the Feast of Canaan? How can someone heal a blind man by just speaking a word? Or he did it several ways. Puts mud on the guy's eyes and says, okay, go, you're going to be healed. How can, how can someone do those things? It's God. It's God. Nothing is impossible with God. He said, don't look, you don't look. It's just that simple. I mean, just if you have to, you put little things on with the horses. And he's, I'm not looking. I'm not turning that way. That's for sure. Sodom was judged. Noah's world was judged. The angels were judged. And you can be sure that the false prophets that he's talking about here are going to be judged. And those who follow them. Those who take the way of darkness will be judged by our God. False teaching. This week, the depravity and deception of the false teachers is going to be exposed. Beware of the false teachers con. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us to study the inerrant word of God. Lord, we trust this as words from you to us. Your mouth, your prophet, or your apostles, written on paper and given to us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, illuminated by the Holy Spirit to our eyes and our hearts and our minds. The only way we can understand it, that we can know how to walk this life out on this side with your truth. Lord, please speak to us today the things that you want us to hear and help us to apply them. In Jesus' name, amen. The false teacher's con, depravity and deception. Stephen Cole says this. It has a great introduction on his teaching on this. It says, if 2 Peter chapter 2 were written and submitted as an article to an evangelical magazine, it would be rejected. And he says this, the rejection notices would say, too harsh and judgmental, too negative, too critical of other ministries. Where's the grace? Rewrite in kinder, gentler tone. And I thought, he's right. Second Peter would not pass <laughs> the test of going to some event. It's not cheery enough. He says this, because tolerance has become the chief virtue of our culture, and because the culture always creeps into the church, the church today is decidedly against anything that smacks of judgment or criticism of those who claim to be evangelicals. That was a good word. Good word. Look, at what we're looking here in 2 Peter is like putting up a most wanted poster. Con men, most wanted. Beware. Be able to spot these guys when they show up and avoid their teaching. Paul had something to say about this in Acts chapter 20, verse 29 and 30. Regarding false teachers then, false teachers all through the epochs of time, all the way up to today. People that are lying to take people away from God. He speaks to the elders at Ephesus, and he says these words, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, it will be from within and from without. 
Men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. And I wanted to tell you, that word draw is the word apospeo. And it means to drag forth, unsheath a sword, force is implied. These are trying to drag people away from the truth by force, coercion, any way that they can to drag people from the truth. He says, therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. In verse 12 through 16, we see these words. The false teachers, the con starts with their depravity. They want to get you immersed in their depravity, their thinking, their way to drag you away from the truth of God. And it's happening all the time. And remember, the con man doesn't come out and say, oh, I have a big C on my forehead. I am a con man. Watch out for me. You know, they don't do that. They don't do that. They're sneaky. They set traps. They set snares. They catch people. More on that in a few minutes. Verse 12 through 16, their depravity. But these, like natural brute beasts, this is how the Spirit of God is speaking to Peter on what to write about these guys. Made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They're even doing, usually evil is, is sequestered into the nighttime. But these are so arrogant, they're just out there right in the open in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. They're right with you. Having eyes full of adultery, they cannot cease from sin, enticing, watch this, their target, unstable souls. They have a heart trained, trained, prepared in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray. Following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, which we'll talk about in just a second, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. And there's another one that people say, you believe that God could speak through a donkey? I say, yes, I do. I believe that Jonah had a great big fish too. You know why? Because Jesus talked about it. Peter's talking about these things. I believe this is true. This is true. That's a side note. False teachers approach. They are brute beasts. Brute beasts, driven like animals, who like their mentor, Satan would be their mentor, seek to devour all in the guise of love and truth. Love and truth. To drag you away with force. Notice their target. Their target is always the unprepared. It's always those who have kind of drifted away from the centrality of God. Watch this. Their target is babies, the weak, the naive, and they entice with false teaching. And they entice you, drag you away. Deception is their game. Control is their goal. They carouse in the daytime. They're comfortable with their sin right before everybody. It's okay to hang with the world. And in Christendom, oftentimes it takes manifest, it's manifested by the hyper-grace philosophy that you can do whatever you want because it's covered. It's covered by the grace of God. Now look at The grace of God is like the most amazing, incredible thing that we can have. But you cannot presume upon the grace of God and say, I am going to do my sin because I know God's going to forgive me. 
Oh boy, you, you, you can do your sin, but you can be sure that your sin will find you out. And if you read the scripture, you will know that you, you sow a win, you reap a whirlwind. You sow and you reap greater and later what you sow. They reject the lordship of Christ and they reject being separate unto God and reject, reject holiness while they feast with you in your midst. So this can be the false teachers. This can be Christians that are caught up in the hyper-grace movement. They reject the lordship of Christ. Their goal, their goal is to entice, notice, this, notice the scripture, entice the unstable souls, seduce the unstable souls with eyes full of adultery. Eyes full of adultery. They're looking for someone to seduce, someone to entice. Remember this, the soul is your thoughts, feelings, emotions. It's the conduit by which we take in information. And what happens in our soul usually is carried out in our bodies. Be very careful what you take in. The battleground is the mind. The unstable are the target. And notice that the double-minded that we see in James chapter 1, verse 8, you're double-minded, unstable in everything that you do. Those are the targets. You know what double-minded is? Torn between God and torn between the world. Which way will I go? I mean, you are in dangerous territory when you walk your life out that way. Now, occasionally we can slip and fall and go into the world and go into the flesh and live out that misery, and then God does what he does with us, and we come back to him. We, I want to stay right in the center where he is. That's the safe place to be. You know, when you get beat up enough, you learn that's not fun. I think I've had enough of this. I think I'm going to walk this way because this is a better way. This is a better way. Torn between two things, unstable, unstable. Now, when you, remember, remember this, please, if you don't hear anything else, hear this. What you take into your mind is what eventually comes out of your mind. It will affect your soul. Guard your mind. Guard your mind. The lost are cannon fodder for deception, but also the compromised Christian. Cannon fodder for deception. The half-in, half-out person. Conned by the false teachers who appear as, watch this, they always appear this way, a thinker, a learned person. Oh, this person has the PhD, LMNOP, QRSTUV after their name, and oh, are they smart. Are they ever smart? They're the learned person, full of the philosophies of this world. You know where you find them? Academia. You go to a college, you go to a university, they're just loaded there. The, the internet and blogs, somebody with this super insight into different things. Look, we have a warning in Colossians 2.8. If you just circle it, write it down, this is a, this is a warning. See to it that none, no one is taken captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies that depend on human traditions and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies. You know what philosophies are? Philosophies are this. It's the love of wisdom. Remember the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17 when, when Paul was talking to them? And they're pontificating about all the insights into great depths of thought in the world and all the different philosophies that were going on that time. And everybody met on Mars Hill and they were just talking about all this great deep stuff. The meaning of life, theories about life, 
great thinkers, but also the con men appear as this, the creator of new ideas. Remember the Gnostics? They always have something new to bring, something new to bring to the forefront, a new conspiracy, a conspiracy of minute crowd. This is what's really going on around you, all meant to lure you away from the truth of God and the Scripture. It is always meant to take people away. It is never meant to bring people to God. It's always, always, always the way Satan works. Takes you away from the truth of God and the Scriptures and into a, a world of confusion. When you start getting into that stuff, you get into a world of confusion. Now hear this. There is zero, zero confusion for those who are in Christ. Zero. Zero. Satan, there's always confusion. You can always see him at work. Whenever there's confusion in a group, he brings confusion into churches. He brings confusion into relationships. Whenever you see that, you know who's at work behind the scenes. Zero. Colossians 2.9 says this. We just said 2.8. Well, 2.9 says this. In Christ, all the fullness of deity exists in bodily form. You know what that means? Jesus Christ is God incarnate. And there is no confusion in God. You follow Jesus, you're on the right path. You have been given fullness in verse 10, 2.10. The fullness in Christ who is head of every power and every authority. Now hear this. Nothing in this created world, nothing compares with Christ. No fantastic new philosophy. No new Gnostic type conspiracy. No demon. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing, and may I say absolutely nothing, compares with our Lord. Nothing. In verse 15, the con men say this, they will always take you down the wrong path. They have forsaken, they have abandoned the right way, and the example was Balaam. Now, if you haven't done a study in numbers in a decade or two, you're not, you might be a little hazy on Balaam. So I'll let you, well, if you come on Tuesday night, you will have learned about Balaam. I'll just give you the the cliff notes here in Balaam. Balaam is this. Balaam was a hireling prophet who heard from God. He's an interesting guy. He sounds kind of legitimate until he goes on and on and on. And finally, by the end of it, you know he's a false prophet for sure. A hireling prophet who knew the right way, but abandoned it because of greed for money. You can read about it in Numbers 22 through 24 and Numbers 31, 1 through 16. Con men always have a price. They always have a price. Either they want the funds from you, oh, send for this information. Just send a few dollars in, and I'll give you some deeper insights into what I've been talking to you about. It's the money, or it's control. I want to control you. I want to take over your thinking. I want you to start to think along these same lines to draw you away from God. It's always a price. Peter describes this kind of attitude as madness, insane thinking. John MacArthur says this about Balaam. He says this, Balaam served as an illustration of a false prophet. He was in the Old Testament a compromising prophet for sale to whomever paid him, who preferred wealth and popularity, preferred wealth and popularity over faithfulness and obedience to God. And he was chastened by a talking donkey. So the donkey could see the angel of the Lord and wouldn't move, but Balaam couldn't. And the donkey spoke to him. Now look at it. You know who Balaam was? He's called a diviner, D-I-V-N-E-R, a soothsayer. The Hebrew word is kwasam, 
Q-A-S-A-M, and it means this. It's always used of false prophets of four nations who attempt to learn the will of the gods, small g, which is always the demonic realm, always the demonic realm, to manipulate circumstances. Folks, this is the occult. The occult is real. The occult we're warned about is stay away from it because it will hurt you. It will, it's, it's interesting. People get caught up into it because, oh, they, they, somebody told me some truth that I never heard. They, they couldn't possibly. The demons are watching. They can extrapolate from what's going on. They're smart. They're smart. Don't get caught up in it. Don't get caught up in Ouija boards. Tarot cards, palm readers, fortune tellers, channelers. It, the whole thing in Scripture says, run for your life. Flee from this. It will ultimately hurt you. You cannot compromise with this. There's a dark side that wants to suck you in, to suck you in and to hurt you. That is exactly what it wants to do. Exactly what it wants to do. The false teachers con promises the world, promise you great insight into deep thinking, but it always results in your emptiness. Watch verse 17. Their emptiness. Their emptiness. These are wells without water. Not a very good well, is it? No water. Clouds carried by, by a tempest for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. This is, the te- this is the destiny of the false teachers. Their end game is your emptiness and your instability. They are like springs that offer water to travelers who have been crossing a dry, barren desert. But when the traveler reaches the springs, they are dry. They've been conned. They are like mists that offer rain to the farmer, but when the mists arrive, they are driven away by the rushing wind of a storm. They are of no value. They have been conned. The con artist is always at work around us, always at work, offering special insight, offering hope, but the hope is empty and hope is unstable. But notice this. Make no mistake. The end of these false teachers is this. Blackness darkest doom, and that word darkness is the word sokos, S-O-K-O-S, and it means darkness, ruin, unhappiness, eternal misery. That is their destiny, eternal misery. Verse 18 and 19, they can be very convincing, folks, very convincing. You give your time to them, you can get sucked into a multitude of different strange things. Their allurement, verse 18 and 19, for when they speak great swelling words, now what does that mean? They sound good. Great swelling words. Oh, they sound good. Oh, they sound so convincing. And I'm right and you're wrong. And oh, it's always designed to take you away from the main point of truth, and that's God. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually, oh, watch this, They have actually escaped from those who live in error. Sounds like believers, doesn't it? While they promise them liberty or freedom, they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by whom a person is overcome, by him he also he has brought into bondage or slavery. That is always the end result. Let's develop this a little bit. Notice they allure with words of emptiness. Emptiness. Warren Wiersbe says this, Literally, it means inflated words that mean nothing. Big talk. Special insights that mean nothing. They allure with the sensual and the sensational. 
So you're not going to use something draggy to suck you in. It'll always be something sensual or, or, or sensational. The lust of the flesh is, is often the focus. Lewdness. You know what lewdness is? Riotous excess. No restraint. Do what you want. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. Remember that song the animals wrote? It's my life and I do what I want. We think the 60s music was great. That's what we're hearing. <laughs> you wonder why we're messed up? That's what, we're, that's what we listen to 24-7. I don't know. You, you might be listening to the... You don't, I don't even know if you can hear the words, but we got messed up, you get messed up. Be careful what you listen to. The false god's attraction, lewdness, and sensuality, that's what, that's what attracted Israel, wasn't it? They had experience with the true God, but then they saw this false God with all the sensuality, sensationalism, and Israel got hooked, hooked. And they ended up in captivity, ended up in captivity. The allurement is directed at those who have escaped from error. Remember this. Those who escape from error, I believe, are people that have made a profession of faith. And always, 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 they want you back. They want you back into their fold. They want to hook you back in, go back to your old way. And by the way, your flesh, which is unredeemed, okay? Remember, you're born again of the Spirit. We're born again of the Spirit. We have the power of God to control our souls, what comes into our mind. It's a mind game. But remember, what is played out from our mind is in our bodies, in our flesh. Our flesh, our fleshly part of us, always wants to go back to the old ways. Always wants to go back to the cesspool. He says at the very end here, which I'm like a dog going back to his vomit or a pig to their mire. That's what we want to do as humans. And the Spirit of God says, no, walk in truth. Walk in truth. Stay the line. They want to drag you back. Hear the words of Jeremiah. He gives a warning here. Now remember, Jeremiah the prophet was dealing with these people who followed these false gods. And he says this regarding the con men, and maybe even you today. For among my people are found wicked men. They lie in wait as one who sets snares. They set a trap. They catch men. False teachers, deceivers' goal is to catch you, reel you in, and you know what you do with your fish? And they take you by force, don't they? Yeah. Don't take the bait. Don't take the bait. John Corson has this to say about these guys. Peter's clear warning is extremely appropriate for us today because the last days, which we are living in, I believe we're in the last of the last days, okay? And more and more will teach from their own imaginations. Oh, how our imaginations can take off following their own agendas. And if you think, Peter's warning doesn't apply to you. Perhaps you are in the gravest of danger because you will eventually buy into some new idea or practice that is not seen in the life of Christ or the apostles. Deception. A new deception popping up. A deception a minute. A deception a minute just popping up. Stay the course, folks. Stay the course. Do not be overcome, verse 19 says, and brought into slavery or bondage. Do not fall for their allurement. It's always alluring. It's always alluring to draw you in. Don't fall for it. Verse 20 through 22, the false teachers con, a warning to be heeded. Now this is a very tough period of scripture 
which is right up there with Hebrews talking about falling away and losing your faith. Okay? And I'll expound on it, at least the way I view it. You may not. It's okay. But verse 20 through 22 says this, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, now this sounds like people who are saved to me, for if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord, the, of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled. Notice they escape the, the pollution of the world. And they are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than have known it to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returned to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Wow, what does this mean? Well, who is the they in verse 20 is the question. Who is the they? Some say the false teachers, some say they're converts, some say both. But in either way, these people look like they're genuine. They look like they've been saved, at least at some level, at some level. They made a profession of faith. In verse 20, they escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge. Now, this is where you have to get into the significance of words. This knowledge, there's two couple words for knowledge. There's gnosis and there's epinosis. Gnosis is partial knowledge. Epinosis is full knowledge. This is full knowledge. This is epinosis. They have full knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They have received the message of salvation. They have received the message of salvation. But the question is this. Are they a professor or are they a possessor of the faith? Isn't that the question? Are they a professor or a possessor of the faith? These professors of the faith became entangled in the world, entwined, and that means entwined like a spider web, Trapped, just like Jeremiah says, they set traps and they catch men. The end is worse for them than if they had not known the way of truth. Why? Because they have bought into the lie and they have rejected the truth of Jesus Christ, their only hope. Watch what William Barclay says. If they have once known the real way of Christ and have relapsed into this, their case is even worse. They are like the man in the parable whose last state was worse than his first in Matthew 12, 45, where the demon was cast out and the mind was empty, but it wasn't replaced by the Spirit of God. And so he got other demons to come back to that arid place. And the second state of the person was worse than the first. Isn't that scary? Hey, you, you get into this thing, Jesus Christ is my Savior, you have no worry about that. None. No worry about it. Hebrews 10.26 gives us a little more insight into, the, into this person that, that has full knowledge of Christ. It says this. And remember, the book of Hebrews is written to the Hebrews to teach the Hebrews not to be Hebrews. That's right. Don't go back to the old sacrificial system. Don't go back to your old ways. Don't drift away from the centrality of Jesus Christ. That's the whole book. Don't drift. Don't drift. Keep your oars in the water. Remember, if you take your oars out, the current naturally takes you away. You must keep digging in in life, moving forward. There's no stationary place that you can be in Christendom. It is either I'm growing or I'm regressing. 
That's the two options. There's no neutral ground. I think I'll coast now. Because when you coast, where do you go? Ooh, going backwards, going backwards. Watch what it says here. For if we sin willfully, and that's a willful, in, in context, that's a willful rejection of, of salvation by grace through faith alone. That's what he's talking about here. After we have received the knowledge of the truth, epinosis, full knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the only sacrifice for the sins. You can't have no other sacrifice. There's no other thing that humans do to get their sins taken away other than the blood of Jesus Christ. And people try to make things up as they go to assuage their own pitiful minds. There's one way to God, and that's through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's it. These people are being told that. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Verse 29, he says this, of how much worse punishment. Now watch this. Watch words. Punishment is not something that God does to his children. God disciplines his children. The reason I say that, because the word punishment means this, vindictive payback and vengeance. That is not what God does to his children. He always disciplines them with the intent of drawing them back to the centrality of love that he has for them. And God always, always, always welcomes you with open arms. That's our God. He is gracious, compassionate. I mean, just run to him. It's like running to your, your, your when your two-year-old runs to you, and it isn't just the greatest time in life, and they jump up into your lap, and they grab you around the neck, and they just love you to death. Well, that's how Jesus accepts you. Just You run up to him, you jump into his lap, and he just gives you a hug. Isn't there times in your life when you feel like doing that? Like you need that? I need a hug. I need a hug from Jesus. You can just hug me right now, Lord. Just give me a nice little bear hug, because I need it. I need it. Watch this. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, set apart a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? What a warning. What a warning. So, what in the world is going on here? Now, we have seen these, this group of people before in Scripture. Again, in Hebrews, we saw it. Those who are professors of faith, but not possessors of the true faith. They apostatize. They fall away. And what I believe and what I have taught is that these are the second soil people. If you would, go with me on a journey to Luke chapter 8, verse 11 through 15. And it's the parable of the sower. Luke chapter 8, verse 11 through 15. Now remember, the sower goes out and sows the word. And it's, it's the seed. It's a picture of seed. And he throws it out. And some lands on the wayside, some lands on the rock, some, some lands in the, in the weeds, and some lands on the good soil. The seed that gets sown is the word of God. Now watch what happens here. The disciples don't understand the parable. Okay, they're like us. 
Huh? What'd you say? Okay. Watch, Jesus is going to explain it. Okay, I'm going, to, I'm going to break this down for you guys. Now, the parable is this, verse 11. The seed is the word of God. Very plain. It's not miracles. It's not signs and wonders. It's not supernatural. The seed that draws people to God, the, to God is the word of God. Those by the wayside are those who hear, then the devil comes and takes away, takes away the word of God out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. Remember, God has to change the heart. God is the one that works in the hearts of men, takes the blinders off, takes a stone heart and makes it a soft heart, allows you to receive the message of Jesus Christ, to believe the gospel of Christ. It is a work of God in the hearts of human beings. That's how the thing works. Lest they should believe and be saved. Satan steals the word. The heart hasn't been prepared. The soil hasn't been prepared. But ones on the rock, and I think these are the folks, are those who have, when they hear, they receive the word with joy and have no root, but believe for a while. Now there is the key. Because true salvation is believing that it's true is written in the present active participle. It means it's ongoing, continuing belief. And we'll see that more in just a moment, okay? And they believe for a while, and in a time of temptation, fall away. And I think that this is what these folks are. They have a profession of faith. I believe in you, Jesus, in a time of testing, or a time of struggle, or a time of disappointment, or a time of whatever, they say, no more. No more. Second soil. The third soil are those are among the thorns or the weeds. They're choked out by the cares and riches of the world. And then there's a transition in 15. It says, but. But. This is the, the good ground. Those, who, those here who have, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. So, the soils. That's the parable of the soils. I believe this is the second soil. The parable of the sower. This is a fearful warning. A fearful warning. So many have made a profession of faith, but aren't possessors of faith, never having any evidence of a changed life, living like the world continually. Now, look, we lapse into this going back and forth to the world, but we come to our senses and say, I don't want to be there, because you usually get hurt while you're there and come back into the centrality of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 is our key verse. If anyone is in Christ, is a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. We have talked about the compromised carnal Christian in the past. Now, this is the most unsafe place that you can be, a carnal Christian, because you don't know if you're real or you're not real. Remember, only God knows if you're really saved. We can't really, we, we can make observations and that sort of thing, but salvation is something only God can judge. He is the one that really judges fruit, not us. We're not to be sticking our nose and going, oh, I'm not seeing any fruit in you. Because I got big bananas falling off of me. Look how fruitful I am. But oh, there's little withered grapes on your vine. You got no, that isn't up to us. That's God as a fruit inspector. But it's it's an introspective thing. It's always introspective. It's always personal. Is there fruit coming out of me? Am I bearing fruit because I'm with the master? Remember, you don't bear fruit by just going, oh, I'm gonna be really good today and I'm gonna bear a plum. Mm. We don't do that. You don't bear a plum. It comes naturally by abiding in the vine, abiding in Christ. It's a natural outflow of that. 
A person that is carnal has no assurance, never really knowing what their destiny is. And by the way, their loved ones don't know either. And it's grievous to them. It's grievous to them. It's a very unsafe place to be. Those saved, living out their faith, that are in the growth process. Remember with the latter. Adding to your faith virtue. Virtue, knowledge. Knowledge, self-control. Self-control, perseverance. Perseverance, godliness. Godliness, brotherly kindness, and brotherly kindness, love. If you are climbing the ladder and you are growing, you know you're in. Now, we can slip off the ladder. We can slip and fall flat on our face. We can do some dumb things as Christians. We can do some dumb stuff. But, man, we got to get back on that ladder and start climbing again. Never give up. Watch this. Those saved living out their faith in the gross process know that they are saved and their destiny is secure. Romans 8.16 says this, The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if you are a child of God, you are secure in Christ. If you are a possessor of the Lord Jesus, you will continue to believe. That is how you know, John 1.12. Yet all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, present active participle, ongoing belief, all the way to the end. Those are the ones that are saved. Watch 1 John 5.13. These things I have written to you who believe. Who believe. Now, you know what that word is? It means commit to, put your trust in, to follow. Follow the master. Who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. These things are written that you may know. It's not equivocal. It's not equivocal. You may know that you have eternal life. And that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now, if you have an NIV, a New American Standard Bible, that last part won't be in there. It's in the majority text, so it's in the King James, the New King James, and that sort of thing. But it does spell out what the word believe means, that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Folks, believing is the single condition for salvation. If I believe that Jesus died for my sins, and I commit myself to him, if I put my trust in him, I, at that point, I have received him as my Savior. I am going to believe this thing right to the end. I might have some, some quaky waters in my life. I might have some tribulation. I might have some times when I have slipped off the ladder and fallen down. But, buddy, I'm going to get myself back up. I'm going to repent. I'm going to turn back to God, and I'm going to follow him. That's what this message is all about. I don't believe that a true believer can apostatize. I don't believe he can do it. Those apostates, I believe, are the second soil people. They go back to their old ways, and they are simply acting in their true nature. What is their true nature? He says it right here. Like a dog returns to its vomit. A sow having washed looks good to her wallowing in the mire. That's going back to your old ways. Simply reveals their true nature. Genuine saving faith perseveres on the path of righteousness. This is not to say that Christians will never sin. I've already expounded on that. Sometimes they, we sin big time. Sometimes we do. But when we do, we generally get back on the ladder, repent, confess, and get going forward again, pressing on towards the goal to win the prize. False believers, like these false teachers, are like the dogs that go back to their vomit, or pigs that return to their mire. 
They're cleaned up on the outside, but their basic nature never changed. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. Many, many, many people have been conned. Many have been conned. Are you a possessor of faith or are you just a professor? Hopefully you're a professor and a possessor. Because you want to profess your faith to people around you. That they can actually see it. Conclusion, beware of the false teacher's kind. Who is a false teacher? Anyone pseudo-spiritual, that's false, fake spiritual, or a rank heathen who teaches anything contrary to God's word, leading people away from the truth of God. No, and listen to this, no one wakes up one morning and says, I think I will be an apostate. I think I'm going to do that. I think I will fall away. I think I'll buy into the false teacher's teaching. Apostasy usually involves this, a slow fade, a slow fade, a compromise here, a thought there, a drifting away from God, and a slow fade away. What we will, now listen to this statement. Please hear this. What we will be like on any given morning is determined by what we have put in our minds the day before, the night before. What are you spending your time with? What are you spending your time Ask it. What am I spending my time with? What are you cultivating in your life? What you put in your mind, this will come up, what you put in your mind is what will come out. Remember, your flesh, your body, will live out the dictates of your soul or your mind or your thinking. Be careful. Beware of the false teacher's con and charm and allurement. Their goal is to con and charm you away from the truth and away from God. It's always that. It's always that. You always watch them. The end is bondage, it's entanglement, and it's deceived. One last word. If you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. A last little bit about false teachers that Jesus warns about. Please hear. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15 is going to contrast the false teaching with the true teaching. He says, beware of false teachers. This is Jesus speaking. Who come to you in sheep's clothing. Oh, they look so innocent. They are pontificators. They look so intelligent. But inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. That's really what they are. They want to devour you. You will know them by their, oh, their fruits, what they really produce and what they are really saying. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes? No. Or figs from thistles? No. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit. If you're a real prophet, you're going to bear good fruit. But a bad tree bears bad fruit. And bad fruit is something that will take you away from your God. Guaranteed. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a bad tree good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, watch the end of it, thrown into the fire. This is God's wrath. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Now, very quickly, what is fruit? Five things that are fruit. One is Christ-like character. That's in Galatians 5, 22 through 23. My conduct 
how I conduct my life while I'm here. Remember, we are to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct. A godly witness in, in Romans 1.13. Praising God. A spirit of praising God. You ever go through your house praising God? That's fruit. That's fruit. Praise you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done. I love you, Lord. That's a fruit. That is a fruit. And finally, giving in Romans 15, 26 through 28. Giving of our resources, time, talent, treasure. You give of everything you have to God. Fruit. That's what the Bible calls fruit. You can identify false teachers by their fruit. Spot them and expose them. Look at, we must, as the people of God, expose false teaching to save the rest of the ones who could be led down the primrose path of darkness. Remember, we're always looking out for the weaker one, the weaker brother, the new one, the struggling one, the straggling one that wants to straggle off. We are looking after them. That is what we are to do. Expose the false. Ephesians 5.11, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Now, how do you expose the unfruitful works of darkness? With the light. Get the light of the word of God pointed at them. That is how you displace the darkness, with the light. Beware of false teachers and their con. If you don't know if you're a real Christian or not, if you've lived for yourself after you've said something in second grade or whatever it was, and you've totally had nothing to do with God or his word, you don't have the witness of the Spirit of God in you, that you are a child of God, then you can so easily come into the family of God by simply believing that Jesus Christ is your Savior, that he paid for your sins. It is the easiest thing. Christ has done it all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. That is the truth of the gospel message. Now, living out the Christian life is something different. That's sanctification. That takes the power of the Spirit of God, working, we, we working in conjunction with the Spirit of God, growing and walking this thing out. That's a whole different paradigm. That's, that's, a, that's much more difficult. But salvation is, God has done it all. And we must believe and receive the message. It is so easy. And how can you resist it? Just believe. That's what I'm, my encouragement to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. And Holy Spirit, you are the one that really imparts truth to people's beings. You are the one that penetrates the veneer of our hearts. You are the one that changes thinking. You are the one that takes the veil off of people's eyes. And right now, Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask that you would speak to each one of our hearts where we are. If we are, are wondering if we're in the family of God, help us to settle that right now. Lord, I believe that you died for my sins. I receive you as my Savior. And I want to walk in newness of life. Oh, come into the family of God. If you've fallen off the ladder and you're in the dirt and you feel like you can't go on, oh, the Spirit of God will pick you up. He's the rod of iron up your spine. And he'll give you the strength to get back on and to start climbing again. Grow, grow, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Savior. Father, right now, I just pray your blessings upon this group of people and that your Spirit will do his work in this group. Thank you for us being able to hear the word of God today. In Jesus' name, amen.